I stand squarely behind my decision. After 20 years, I've learned the hard way that there was never a good time to withdraw U.S. forces. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Matt Karnichnik, Politico's chief Europe correspondent, filling in for Andrew Gray, who was off this week. And what a week it has been, dominated by the extraordinary scenes coming out of Afghanistan as American and allied forces scrambled to evacuate military, staff, and civilians as the Taliban swept into power. In this episode, we'll debate what went wrong and what the implications are for NATO, for Europe, and the transatlantic alliance at large. You'll hear from regional expert Ian Bremer, president of the Eurasia Group, and from America's most recent ambassador to NATO under Donald Trump, Kay Bailey Hutchison. And also in this episode, I'll give you a brief update on where things stand in Germany's big federal election this fall. But first, let's get to our podcast panel. Joining us for the panel this week are Annabelle Dixon in London. Hello. Lily Beyer in Brussels. Hi, everyone. And Saeem Saeed, who's also in Brussels. Hi, guys. Saeem, you are from Pakistan originally and have spent a lot of time in and around the region. One of the things that seems to have gotten a bit lost in a lot of the press coverage over the past few days is what people in places like Pakistan and Iran make of what's happening in Afghanistan. Are they as shocked and horrified as we are in the West over this? No. Uh, but I think it's 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 a very, very different dynamic. On the ground, you've got a very basic kind of understanding that, well, the Americans are gone, they're humiliated, that's good. This is a win for Islam, that's good. But I think that's the understanding that you have, I think, among the mainstream. I think we have governments in Iran and Pakistan that are actually far more worried and quite terrified, actually, of what this might actually bring to the region. Annabelle, there's also been a lot of dismay and frustration in the UK about the way the US has handled this, in particular, Joe Biden's decision to effectively go it alone several months ago. And now this week, he didn't get in touch with Boris Johnson until late last night, which would have been unthinkable a couple of years ago, given this so-called special relationship between the United States and the UK. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think it's been a bit of a wake up call. You know, the Trump blip sort of spooked the UK in their sort of post Brexit tilt across the Atlantic. But they thought there'd be a reset with Biden. And it just makes this pretense that the UK can influence, collaborate, call in favours with the US, you know, get a heads up from its supposed best friends. Um, it's really been shattered by this. So, yeah, I, th I think there's certainly been sort of shock in London and there's been debates in the House of Commons today. Parliament was recalled to discuss the issue and the strength of feeling towards Biden, its sort of anger at America has been incredibly strong. I was never prouder than when I was decorated by the 82nd Airborne after the capture of Musakala. It was a huge privilege, a huge privilege to be recognised by such an extraordinary unit in combat. To see their commander-in-chief call into question the courage of men I fought with, to claim that they ran, it's shameful. Those who have never fought for the colours they fly should be careful about criticising those who have. 
And that makes Boris Johnson's job harder in selling the special relationship. Lily, one of the things I've noticed uh, just reading the press around Europe is that there's a lot of concern in many capitals, rightly or wrongly, about the question of refugees and how many refugees from Afghanistan are going to be showing up at Europe's door. I know there's been a lot of discussion about this in Brussels as well. What is the reaction there in official circles in the EU bubble to what many think is a ticking time bomb? So it's been really fascinating because if you look at statements from politicians and also commission officials, it feels like they're really walking on a tightrope and there's a lot of tension inside what they're saying. So on the one hand, almost universally, people are saying, you know, we need to protect people most at risk. We cannot abandon Afghans. There's been a lot of statements about the need to protect women and women's rights and the gains that were made over the past 20 years. But on the other hand, we have people from members of the commission to French President Emmanuel Macron talking about how, you know, we, we must protect ourselves against, you know, irregular migratory flows. And uh, when I talk to members of civil society, NGOs who've worked with Afghans on the ground um, and here in Europe, they are very frustrated with this rhetoric. So they're saying, oh, this is fear mongering because traditionally, and they think also now, the vast majority of refugees will end up in countries in the region. And while there might be some flow to Europe, the, the majority won't end up here. That That is the view from a lot of the NGOs. But we do see politically and from the European Commission, a lot of concern that there would be increased migratory pressure. Um, And we do need to, of course, keep in mind that there are a couple of major elections coming up here in Europe. And I do think that that reality feeds in to the reaction that we're seeing. Saeem, obviously, most of the refugees from Afghanistan in the past have ended up in the region, in your home country, Pakistan, in Iran, Turkey, What is the sense there now on this question of refugees? I spoke to the Pakistani ambassador to the EU yesterday, and he said that if they come in, they're going to be looking to get elsewhere, which I think was a veiled threat to the EU that uh, if they're going to be on a plane or a boat from Pakistan onto Europe, then I don't think they're going to stand in the way, or at least they're going to ask for something in return for Europe to do something about that. Both Chancellor Merkel and Prime Minister Boris Johnson spoke with Imran Khan, Pakistan's prime minister, uh, yesterday and today, and I'm pretty sure those refugee flows uh, came up. The French president, uh, Emmanuel Macron, also brought up the fact that France and the EU in general needs to work with Iran and with Pakistan and with Turkey to deal with the migrant flows over there first. And to be honest, if you're Afghan, it's much easier for you to go to Pakistan than it is to Europe. You've got family there. You've got cultural connections there. You've got historic connections, linguistic ones. So that's actually where the migrant crisis is going to happen if there is going to be one. Lily, is this something you think that the EU is prepared to do, the demand from Pakistan and from other countries in the region that the Europeans open their checkbook? I think that they're already preparing to do so. So if we look at the statements from from the past few days, we already see EU officials talking about supporting countries in the region and intensifying cooperation with you know communities in Pakistan, Iran, Tajikistan, uh, as well as Turkey. Annabelle, is this an area you think that we could actually see the impossible, a close cooperation between the EU and the UK? Yeah, well, it, it definitely seems like Boris Johnson's very keen to talk to his European allies 
on it. You know, he spoke to Macron and Merkel in the last few days. And um, Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, had an op-ed this morning heralding the, the UK's refugee scheme. They're going to grant asylum to 5,000 refugees, they said, and potentially more over the longer term. I think another interesting point talking about, you know, whether there'll be support to neighbouring countries. I've been very interested in, in the last few days, this sort of talk about American retreat and sort of condemnation of the Biden regime. But I think the kind of UK position on international aid is very interesting. There's been a kind of huge political move to cut aid by Boris Johnson's government. It's been a very contentious issue in the UK. But in the last couple of days, you know, they've suddenly had to increase their aid budget again. They're going to give more to Afghanistan, having cut it. And for all the talk of the US in retreat, the UK has been in retreat in terms of its aid commitments. And I do think that's something that's potentially going to be rethought in the coming days. Maybe one point I would raise is that there are a lot of questions right now about this commitment to women's rights, because we keep hearing European politicians saying, you know, we won't abandon Afghan women. And yet we don't really know what these politicians here in Brussels and in other EU capitals are actually planning to do to help these women and, you know, what, what kind of tools they can use when the Taliban is already in Kabul to help safeguard some of the advances that were made over the past 20 years. So in my mind, that is a very big question. I think one of the interesting things on that is there's obviously this debate going on about whether government's going to recognize the Taliban as a government, if they form a government. And I think it's going to be quite tricky because there are in inevitably going to be some horrendous stories coming out of Afghanistan on human rights. And I think that's going to put pressure on the governments over whether they recognize the Taliban. Well, and I, I think the various countries need to get their own nationals out as well before they start entertaining requests to recognize the government. Uh, I just wanted to add a little bit on the on the recognition. That's definitely true. And I think that that applies very much to the region as well. So, for example, with Pakistan, uh, I think one of the big strategic errors that I think it's recognized was being one of the only countries in the world to recognize the Taliban government the last time they took over Afghanistan in 96. And they kind of realized that uh, internationally that they kind of looked like they were on the wrong side of that. I think there it would be interesting to see whether they follow the likes of China, say, that have less uh, scruples about what conditions under which they can uh, recognize the Afghan government or whether they follow the West on this one. Well, there's certainly a lot of hard lessons for everybody to be learned out of what's happened over the past weeks, months and years in Afghanistan. Thank you all for your time and insights. And I'm sure we'll be back to speak to you again sometime soon. Thanks, Matt. Thanks very Thank much. Now let's turn to the interview I did this week with Ian Bremer, who is the president of the Eurasia Group and one of the foremost experts on Afghanistan and the region. As you'll hear, we discussed what went wrong with the U.S. withdrawal and what to expect next in the transatlantic relationship as a result. Ian, in Europe, the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan and everything that has happened over the past week is increasingly being regarded as a betrayal, both of Afghanistan and of everything the United States is supposed to stand for in the world. Are the Europeans right about this? The Europeans certainly are angry about the fact that so much of this decision was taken unilaterally by the Biden administration. Uh, and I think they're angry for two reasons in that regard. 
One is that Biden's not Trump. And, you know, for four years, you had America first and you had a more unilateralist, transactionalist, tribal American president. And the Europeans, you know, were defensive about that. Right. I mean, they were sort of let's hope we can keep NATO together and let's just get through this. And when Biden won, there was, as I'm sure, you know, Matthew, an extraordinary sense of relief uh, among America's European allies, particularly on the continent. And so I think that there's an enormous disappointment that this decision, which is a debacle on the ground, the execution was very poorly managed, even though, in my view, the decision to end the war was the right one, uh, but the massive, massive mistakes made, that it was made unilaterally. So I think that's a, that's a big piece of this. And the other big piece of this is, of course, the fact that this, I mean, a failed Afghanistan and a Taliban-led Afghanistan, and those aren't the exact same thing, but they're close, are much bigger problems for the Europeans in terms of refugees, in terms of security and other national interests than they are for the Americans. Also something that, I mean, clearly, to the extent that Biden has a foreign policy doctrine, and it's fairly well articulated, it is the idea of a US foreign policy for the middle class. That's not for the European middle class or the Japanese middle class, it's for the American middle class. And I, I think the Europeans are increasingly waking up to the notion that it doesn't matter who you elect as president in the US, American national interests are increasingly quite different from European national interests. Well, that's one of the interesting aspects, I think, of this whole episode, because the United States has clearly decided that Afghanistan and what happens in Afghanistan is not in the U.S. national interest. It is, however, as you've just indicated, in Europe's interest, in Europe's strategic interest. Do you think we can expect Europe to step up here to try to play more of a role in what's going on in Afghanistan and in the surrounding neighborhood because of the refugees and, and other challenges that they're going to face as a result of this? Or are we just going to see same the same kind of muddling through that we've seen from, from Europe in the past? I, I think what's more important, it's not the Europeans are going to step up. It's rather that if this is the way the Americans are treating the Europeans on this issue, well, then how are the Europeans going to respond on other issues where the United States is looking for European coordination? I mean, we're seeing that shared values only get you so far. And instead, it's much more about alignment of interests more tactically. It's about American power. And I think one of the things that's going to be difficult for the Europeans to swallow is the fact that as the Americans are articulating a more unilateral view on foreign policy in the world, the U.S. is also becoming asymmetrically more powerful vis-a-vis -vis its allies. And that is clearly true today compared to before the pandemic in terms of the role of the U.S. dollar, the role of the banks, the role of the tech companies, the impact of the U.S. economic rebound, the vaccines, I mean, you name it, U.S. influence and raw power is actually greater. You look at the G7, it looks more asymmetric today than it did five years ago, 10 years ago, and 20 years ago. So on the one hand, the Europeans are more uncomfortable 
with a America that doesn't want to be, that actively rejects being the global policeman or the architect of global trade or the cheerleader of global values. I mean, truly, that's what a G0 world, as I put it, is all about, but also has to recognize that the ability of the Americans to get its way when it leans into it is actually becoming greater. If you were to be advising the Europeans right now, if you were, say, von der Leyen's advisor or Angela Merkel's, what would you be telling them to do in terms of the transatlantic relationship? How should they respond to this debacle? Well, I I don't think that there is a credible, strategic, autonomous European military that somehow breaks away from NATO. NATO is an organization that persists and persists for good reason. This decision on Afghanistan, in my view, is like a much bigger version of Ukraine. And I think the Europeans would be well advised to see it that way. I mean, Ukraine, we're all upset that the Russians invaded Ukraine. But when the Ukrainians went to Germany and desperately wanted support so they wouldn't have to join the Eurasian Economic Union, the Europeans said no. And when they came to the United States and they desperately wanted to join NATO, we said no. And when, you know, suddenly that became unpopular and when, when they had to tilt to Moscow, then we get upset and the Russians invade. And what do we do? We don't do anything. And so if we let that happen, and by the way, we let that happen collectively because we ultimately just didn't care. And I think that Afghanistan is a reflection of that. So I don't see this as the end of NATO at all. But I do think that on issues like technology and climate, that the Europeans have to lean in more to their collective strength as the world's largest common market with a bureaucratic and rulemaking superpower. And they have to do more driving. And if that driving uh, is occasionally at odds with the United States, well, I mean, that's obviously we see what the Americans do when their driving is occasionally at odds with the Europeans. I think that this will affect the transatlantic relationship. One major player we haven't mentioned here is China. They're obviously interested in improving their relations with the uh, Taliban. How do you think China is going to play this? Well, they don't want a failed state. And remember, when the Taliban were in charge of Afghanistan before 9-11, they didn't control a lot of the country. They didn't control the North, uh, for example. Uh, The warlords did. I doubt that's going to change this time around. Uh, I think it is very early to make predictions about just how consolidated Taliban rule will be and how long it can persist. They're going to have virtually no economic capacity as a government. That's all been international aid. It's going away. The Chinese will certainly be willing to put some money into infrastructure projects and to defend what they already have on the ground. But they are not remotely going to be stepping into the breach that the Americans and America's allies have vacated. Um, So, yes, they will recognize the Taliban as the official sovereign government of Afghanistan. They will engage with them through Belt and Road, and they will hope that the country does not become a failed state. They will also be carrots and sticks tied to we do not want to see any operations of Muslim extremists uh, that might find common cause with the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. So, yeah, there are lots of interests there. And China will become the most important external power 
in Afghanistan going forward, but it won't be a very important external power in that regard. This is going to be much more of a vacuum. And that is, I think, the problem that we all have going forward, including the Chinese, including the Russians. Uh, and the Russians, by the way, are the ones that are the most likely to get back involved in military engagement because they're going to want to make sure that uh, Islamic extremism doesn't destabilize Central Asia. Well, Ian, thank you very much for your time. It's been a, a fascinating look at the last couple of weeks. Sure, Matthew, my pleasure. Coming up after this short break, I'll share the latest news from Germany, which is gearing up for the final stretch of campaigning ahead of the big election in September. And you'll hear from Kay Bailey Hutchison, the most recent U.S. ambassador to NATO. The third season of Politico's Westminster Insider podcast kicks off this Friday. I'm your host, Jack Blanchard, and this week I'll be taking a powerful look at the UK's 20-year involvement in Afghanistan. My guests, Rory Stewart, Tom Tugendhat and others will reflect on their personal experiences of the conflict, the people they met and all they hoped to achieve while they were there. Subscribe or follow Westminster Insider wherever you get your podcasts. Now, before we hear from Kay Bailey Hutchison, I wanted to take a moment to give you a quick update on the German election, which is fast approaching on September the 26th. Since we last discussed the German election several weeks ago, we've seen a accelerating decline in the fortunes of Armin Laschet, who is the conservative candidate for chancellor, a member of Angela Merkel's Christian Democrats, and the man many people thought until recently was a shoe-in to become the next chancellor. Laschet has committed a number of gaffes. Uh, his public appearances have really been underwhelming, and many people are now looking elsewhere, in particular to the Social Democratic candidate Olaf Scholz, who's the German finance minister and the former mayor of Hamburg, who is becoming more and more popular as the weeks go by. There was a poll out today, uh, we're recording on Wednesday, showing the Social Democrats are now just two points away from the CDU, the CDU being at around 23% and Social Democrats at 21%, which puts this race closer than it ever has been. The Greens, meanwhile, which have had their own challenges over the past several weeks with their candidate, who's been accused of plagiarism and dressing up her resume. That's Annalena Baerbock, who's the co-leader of the Greens, have stabilized at around 20%. But the long and short of it is that this campaign is wide open. It's not clear who is going to be the next leader of Germany or the next de facto leader of Europe. So watch this space. Now let's get back to the big topic dominating the headlines this week, Afghanistan. Late last week, as the Taliban began to take over all of Afghanistan, Politico's Sarah Wheaton and David Herzenhorn spoke to Kay Bailey Hutchison, Trump's woman in Brussels at NATO, until January of this year. Since this conversation, the government has obviously fallen and the Taliban have taken control of the capital. But there's still plenty of insights you'll find interesting in these highlights from the conversation. I am Kay Bailey Hutchison, and I have been a United States senator and most recently U.S. ambassador to NATO. And where are you zooming in from today? From Dallas, Texas. Very nice. 
And we're we're speaking on Thursday, August twelfth, and the world is watching uh, in in horror actually as the Taliban advances in Afghanistan as U.S. and NATO allied forces depart. So just to kick off with kind of a a tough subject, are you surprised by the rate of deterioration here? It is such a tough subject. I am not surprised. I think that all of the advice that was put out before this happened was that the Taliban would move swiftly, and they have, and it is horrifying. I'm very sad to see that we have left in the way we're leaving, and I had written an op-ed that encouraged us not to take out 2,500 troops, And to make sure that people knew that the 2,500 Americans were joined by 8,500 NATO allies, and we were not on the front lines of combat. Since 2015, we have been training and advising the Afghans, and the Afghan soldiers have been on the front line. So I think it was a stabilization force that was very effective. And I think the consequences now are dire. And I am very, I'm sad, but I'm also concerned about security interests, as we know that terrorist networks are going to be given a pass by the Taliban. Mm-hmm. But President Donald Trump actually first made the commitment to get the U.S. out. Uh, he wanted it done even earlier in, in May of this year. Biden actually pushed the deadline back a bit. Do you think that this situation really looks all that different from what Trump would have done? It's very different. And of course, we don't know what President Trump would have done, given the 2,500 that he said he would leave there. But I think that it's very different to have zero. And I think that we are losing not only the ability to bring a stabilization and stop the terrorist growth in Afghanistan, but we're looking strategically also at what we're doing with China and having that base of operation out of Afghanistan was very helpful. And also looking at now what the Taliban is doing in reaching out to China, saying, come and help us, help us get the natural resources that we have, give us the technology, give us probably financial backing. Now, is that really in America's interest to have those kinds of alliances now being built in Afghanistan? And our European allies, I think, feel very concerned about this as well. I know they do. Maybe maybe I could ask you just because we haven't had a, a chance to talk to you since the Biden administration took office, just your sense of how this all unfolded. Because in fact, we know the decision on withdrawal had essentially been made by President Trump. And then officially it was put on hold. And the same allies, obviously, that you're talking about were left hanging for what felt like months before the inevitable decision was made. And then the Secretary General in particular seemed to be left hanging out to dry because he'd said over and over again, no withdrawal without certain conditions. And there he was, uh, sort of having to just go along. And I wonder what your sense was as that as that all unfolded. And like many of your counterparts in, in Europe, were you kind of cringing knowing by September 11th, this, this kind of artificial uh, symbolic deadline, this exact process was going to happen, what we've now seen? Uh, well, I think the one supposition I would not make is that that would have been the final decision 
of the Trump administration. Because as everyone knows, I think it's pretty clear that all of the military advice was to keep the 2,500. And I think President Trump, you know, may have made the same decision. He may not have. I think our allies were definitely ready to stay. And everyone believed that we were a stabilization force. If you had asked me to bet, I would have said, we will keep the 2,500. I mean, we've had that position in Korea. We've had that position in Japan. We've had a stabilization impact. It's been part of our our history that we have stayed to keep a lid on things. And I think from the strategic standpoint, that is very important that we have done that, especially as we are looking at China, at India, places that we are trying to shore up in Asia Afghanistan was a good base of operation. And, and maybe on the on the Secretary General, just to come back to that point, you can, we could broaden oh, yes. this out to also talk about what was your relationship with him like? I think he is an unbelievable leader. I really do. We had a great relationship and I respect him so much. And I think he handled the Trump administration so well. He worked with what he had. And he didn't, uh, he didn't try to make it something else. And I think there, we built a, a confidence with our allies at NATO because we were all on the same message. And the Secretary General uh, was able to portray that, protecting the alliance and protecting the relationship with the U.S. And make no mistake, the U.S. is the leader at NATO because we have the will and we declare what we're going to do and we back it up. And I think that the secretary general valued that and wanted to make sure that all of this talk of strategic autonomy of the European, the EU, was not going to push America out because he understood that the might and the power and the the willingness to declare an adversary, you know, you always have to parse words with Europeans about adversary or potential adversary or potential competitor, but we had the will to declare when it was time to start really looking at China as a competitor and as a potential adversary. And I think the Secretary General embraced that. And I think his leadership has been enormous in keeping the U.S. and the EU together. Was there ever a moment when you really thought that the U.S. might leave NATO? No, no. I was very much in sync with our Secretaries of State and Defense. And I just felt like a point was being made And I think the Europeans, our allies, understood the point. They may not have liked the way it was made, but they understood that they had to do more. And and I said on numerous occasions that every president I worked with when I was in the Senate, which was four, said the same thing. Europeans need to do more for their own security, and we will be there. President Trump was making the same point. And I think they understood that. And they did come through. They did increase their defense spending exponentially in those four years. And I think that the possibility of our leaving, I didn't worry about it because I knew that the Senate on a very bipartisan basis, Congress itself on a bipartisan basis, is very pro-NATO. And I think there would have been real upheaval if anyone had taken that seriously. 
And I think everybody came together to say, no way, is that even on the radar? Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you all. I really enjoyed talking to you. And you too, course. very much. Thanks to Sarah and David for bringing us that conversation. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe or follow us so you never miss an episode. And you can always send us feedback directly. The email is podcast at politico.eu. We'll be back with another episode next week. In the meantime, I'm Matt Karnichnik. Thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. <laughs>